Welcome to the Best of Making Sense. This is Sam Harris. In this series, we re-air some of the most popular episodes of the Making Sense podcast. These are conversations that we think you'll find just as relevant today as when they were originally released. Today I'm speaking with Jonathan Haidt. John is the Thomas Cooley Professor of Ethical Leadership at New York University's Stern School of Business. He got his Ph.D. in social psychology from the University of Pennsylvania, and then he taught at the University of Virginia for 16 years, I believe in the psychology department. He's the author of The Righteous Mind and The Happiness Hypothesis, and most recently, The Coddling of the American Mind, with his co-author Greg Lukianoff. And here we speak about his new book and about the recent moral panics among young adults. We discuss controversies over free speech on campus, the role of intentions in morality, the economy of prestige in so-called call-out culture. We talk about how we should define bigotry, systemic racism, the paradox of progress, how the world gets better and better and we coddle our kids more and more because we want life to be as safe and as easy as possible. Understandably so, but uh, there is a downside. In any case, this is a timely conversation, which should be relevant to people in every generation, really. We're talking to the young, and we're talking to their parents, who have to live with them. So, without further delay, I bring you Jonathan Haidt. I am here with Jonathan Haidt. John, thanks for coming back on the podcast. My pleasure, Sam. So uh, you have a new book, which uh, really the world has been waiting for for quite some time because you're addressing a problem that has been uh, like this cresting wave of leftist intolerance that has breaking over us for now for some years. And the book is The Coddling of the American Mind, which you wrote with uh, your co-author Greg Lukianoff. This book is long overdue. It, it's based on an Atlantic article that you guys wrote a few years ago. So let's just talk about the genesis of this. Yeah, but you were on my podcast uh, a while back, and we got somewhat into this, but the problem has kind of crystallized since then, and there are more elaborations of this. So take me back to the writing of the Atlantic article and just state the nature of the problem for us. So um, Greg Lukianoff is a friend of mine. We, we, we just knew each other casually through a mutual friend, and he came to talk to me in the summer of 2014 and said, uh, John, all this weird stuff has been happening on campus. Greg is the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, and he's been fighting for free speech rights for students since around 2000. And usually that means fighting campus administrators who are always imposing speech codes and, and designating little areas as free speech zones. And suddenly in 2013, 2014, students started asking for safe spaces, trigger warnings. They started um, uh, saying that certain things need to be removed from the curriculum because they were dangerous or threatening or traumatizing. And in a variety of ways, the students were showing the very thought patterns that Greg had learned not to do in cognitive behavioral therapy. Greg is prone to depression. Um, he's had some very serious uh, suicidal depression episodes. Uh, we talk about one in the book that, that led him to learn CBT. And in CBT, 
you learn to do things like recognize catastrophizing. You know, if someone comes to speak, it'll, you know, it'll destroy people. Um, black and white thinking, uh, you know, somebody's all good or all bad. Um, discounting the positive, the Western tradition or whatever you want to say, uh, you know, you focus on just the negatives, not the positives. So Greg saw like, wow, this is really weird. Are we teaching students to think in ways that will make them depressed and anxious? So he came to, he came to talk to me in the summer 2014, and I had just begun to see some of that same stuff in my classes. And we, you and I talked about that in our last discussion, just students acting in a really, you know, very sensitive, um, getting angry easily and, uh, and then filing charges, that sort of thing. So that stuff was, I, I was puzzled by that. And when Greg said, told me his theory, I said, wow, that is such a cool idea. And if you, I'd actually kind of like to write this up with you if you'll have me as a co-author. And so he took me on, we wrote the article and it came out in August of 2015 before all the protests and all the, you know, the, the changes that happened around Halloween, especially Halloween of 2015. So we, we were, you know, people thought that we were cherry picking in 2015, but then all this stuff happened in 2015 through 2017 and violence at, at a few schools. Um, so we ended up, uh, Greg decided we actually had a lot more to say and the problem was a lot worse. And he wanted to write it up as a book. And I said, I'm too busy. I've got to write this other book on capitalism and morality. But as I thought about it, I thought, no, wait a second. You know, I can write about capitalism and morality and try to help people think about economic systems, which I'm just learning about myself. Or I can focus on the universities, which is where I live and what I know about. And we can actually try to do something together. So I decided to write the book with him. And here we are. Some people have argued that this problem is vastly overblown, that it's a, a minority of campuses and even a minority of people on those minority of campuses. I think there was a Vox article not long ago that argued that this was just a pseudo problem. Yes, I think their headline was everything we think about the political correctness crisis on campus is wrong. And, you know, you yeah. see that kind of language, everything. Yes, everything. Right. Who could imagine that Vox would get anything wrong here? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Rather careless. So what has happened to increase your confidence that you're not um, imagining this problem? Yeah. So, it, you know, what I'm all about is that we are all imperfect. We are all biased. We all look for confirmation of what we want. And that's why we need viewpoint diversity. And so I co-founded Heterodox Academy precisely because we need viewpoint diversity. We need to be challenged. And so when a political scientist from Canada, Jeff Sachs, not the economist at, at Columbia, um, different Jeff Sachs, when he wrote uh, an essay, or originally it was a, a set of tweets, but then an essay, um, arguing that actually the data show that there's no change, there's no problem. It was actually wonderful. It was, really, it was a really great demonstration of the value of viewpoint diversity and challenge because it forced us to go to look at his data and say, wait, really, you, you see no change? And then to refine our position. And so what Sachs showed is that if you look at data in the GSS, the General Social Survey, and you look at millennials, they're no different on attitudes towards free speech. And he's right. And that really helped us refine our argument that all along, we weren't talking about millennials. We were talking about the kids who started showing up on campus in 2013, because you don't see any of this stuff before 2013. It all, be, it all comes in between 2013 and 2015. So right there, that helped us see that the issue is not millennials. Um, and this, our, our book is not about millennials at all. It's about um, iGen or Gen Z. Um, so that's the first clarification that was very helpful. Second clarification is that there are about 4,500 um, institutions of higher education in the United States. Most of them are two-year schools or vocational schools. 
Most of them are not selective. Um, if students go attend one of those schools and they go home to a family or off to a job, there's no way they're going to buy into this very arcane worldview in which words are violence and they need safety from books. That that kind of morality can only flourish if there's very little diversity. There's no other uh, political diversity. Um, if students are kept together for four years, um, it, under certain circumstances, this arcane, moralistic um, worldview can flourish. And that seems to happen especially at uh, liberal arts colleges in the Northeast and the West Coast. That's where the problem seems to be strongest. So when, when Sachs said it's not happening at most schools, we had to realize, you know what? He's probably right. Like, we don't know. We don't have data from most schools, but it's probably not happening at most schools. But if you, if you just look at, say, the top 100, from what we hear from people there, students and faculty, um, it is happening. People are, are more afraid to speak up. Um, bad things can happen if you challenge the prevailing view. And it's not because most students have suddenly gone off the deep end. They haven't. Um, this is another good thing from Sachs' uh, challenge, is we had to refine our argument and say it's not due to a big change in the average student. It's due to a big change in the dynamics so that now the sort of a, a, a subset of students who are very angry and who buy into some views that we can debate, but you know, I, I think are, are bad ideas, a subset of students who buy into certain ideas now is allowed to ride roughshod over everyone else and people are afraid to stand up to them. So it's a change in the mm. dynamics. Yeah, I mean, the, the dynamics are interesting because I, I think our intuitions about just how many people in a group are required to kind of nullify the intentions and the aspirations of the whole group are pretty bad. I mean, it doesn't take 50% of a group to turn the tide against the rest. Mm -hmm. That's right. And with social media, so a, a lot of our conversation, like a lot of many conversations, will probably be about social media and what happens. How does the system change when you have various things and, and forces in balance and then you suddenly increase connectivity by a factor of 100? How do things change? And so an essential term here is call-out culture. This, this is what the students themselves call it. Uh, anytime you're in a culture in which you can be, you know, behaving as you've always behaved and suddenly someone will pick on one word, one thing you said, and there could be no end of trouble for you. There could be shame, humiliation, mobbing. When you are in such an environment, even if it's only one or 2% of your fellow students who would do that to you, it'll likely have an effect on your behavior. Just to be clear, this is not just a problem on college campuses. We're seeing this because, first of all, people graduate from college and they enter the workforce from these colleges at a very high level. So we see this sort of thing now at companies like Google among software engineers. We see it at the New York Times in what was happening to Barry Weiss. I don't know if you, if mm -hmm. you yes. recall when the, the Slack channel for the New York Times was published and Barry had said something about she had made a joke about immigrants so they get the job done, quoting Hamilton. This was during the Olympics, and she named a, an Asian-American figure skater, I believe, who, in fact, was not an immigrant, but she right, was, she was the, nearly here. the daughter of right. immigrants, yes. So it was marginalizing to say they get the job done. That's right. We got a glimpse of what the back-channel discussions were like at the New York Times, and they seemed very much to be of a piece with the kinds of triggering effects you describe in your book on college campuses. That's right. So when our article came out in 2015, a lot of people said, oh, come on, you know, students protest. This is student culture. As soon as they go out into the real world, they'll have to drop this stuff. You know, once they are hired in a corporation, the corporation is not going to stand for, you know, for this way of behaving and, and this very confrontational way of, of addressing hurt feelings. 
And we didn't know what would happen. But it turns out, yes, as you say, uh, it became especially clear in 2017 with the Google memo and with in a variety of other ways that these norms have spread out into some parts of the corporate world, primarily those that hire, uh, I think, creatives from the elite universities. That's where this culture is most intense. So, you know, if you were to look mm. at a mining company based in Colorado, I bet you'd see no trace of it. Right. Yeah. But yes, from what I hear at, at top media companies at the New York Times, at the Atlantic, there's a big generational divide. And this is very important for people to understand. Whether you're on the left or the right, if you're over 30 or 35, you believe in free speech. And a lot of people on the left um, in journalism are looking at these new norms and saying, wait a sec, what is this? Um, so this is not, it's not, you know, while there is a left-right aspect to it, unfortunately, um, it, it's more of a generational divide. It, there's a set of new understandings among young people. And we should go into why that is, because when every, you know, part of my whole approach to morality is that we all live in a moral world. We all live in a moral world, uh, a moral matrix. And it's not, things don't happen because there are evil people out there pushing their evil ideas. They happen because there are good people pushing their ideas about virtue or goodness um, that end up producing some bad effects. And I think that's what's happening here. So we just we should just be very clear. This isn't about bashing young people or Gen X or iGen. This is about understanding how a new morality emerged, which prioritizes inclusion and diversity, which are good, you know, good things, of course. Uh, but it prioritizes them in a way that I think sets us up for unending conflict in all of our institutions. Well, I want to get into the root cause of this problem and, and talk about your three great untruths, which I think was a great way to structure your analysis here. But before we broaden the focus, I, I just want to give an example of the kind of thing that has happened on some of these college campuses that has motivated you to pay attention to this problem, because I paid a lot of attention to it, but the details of some of these cases were still blurry to me. And it is just amazing to consider what has been happening. So I, I think let's just talk about the Dean Spellman case at Claremont McKenna College. Yeah, that's a really, really clear one. Yeah. Sure. No, let me, I'll see if I can tell the story very briefly. Um, so Claremont McKenna College out in, in Los Angeles, there was a, a student uh, from, whose parents had emigrated from Mexico. Um, and she, um, so she was born in, in California. She's a student at CMC, and she writes an essay in some, I think it's a campus publication. She writes an essay talking about how marginalized um, she feels. And, you know, she makes some, some points about what it's like to be seen as an affirmative action, admit, um, to be on a campus where all the people like you or most of the people like you are the gardeners rather than the professional staff. So, you know, it's a perfectly uh, it, it, reasonable essay for, for a student to write. And then in response to that, um, uh, the dean of students, Mary Spellman, sends for private email, just person to person, private email. And I'll read you the whole email. Olivia, we, we changed her name here, but or Olivia, thank you for writing and sharing this article with me. We have a lot to do as a college and community. Would you be willing to talk with me sometime about these issues? They're important to me and the Dean of Students staff, and we're working on how we can better serve students, especially those who don't fit our CMC mold. I'd love to talk with you more. So Olivia posted this email on her webpage. And it's not quite that a riot ensued, but she invited people to comment on it um, to share her outrage. Now, I leave it to the listeners to find the outrage. What was she outraged about? I guess you read the book, Sam, so you know. Yeah. Yeah. It was the use of the word mold. Yeah. The amazing thing is that 
it hinges on a single word. I mean, this is way beyond a campus problem, but the dynamics of this is that it is to seize upon the worst possible interpretation of, in this case, a single word, I think with the understanding that the author of, in this case, Dean Spellman, couldn't have possibly intended those worst possible associations with that word. Oh, but intent doesn't matter, Sam. Intent yeah, doesn't right. matter. Now, you and right. I we'll know talk about that. that basic moral psychology is not, you know, if somebody bumps into you, we don't say they've done something immoral unless they meant to. If they intended to push you, it's immoral. But if they tripped or if it's an accident, then we say, no, you know, you didn't mean it. Okay, you apologized. We're done. But that's the old-fashioned, um, otherwise known as the universal view of morality, which is that it, intent matters primarily for judgment, not, not outcome, uh, or not impact, as they say. But the new doctrine is in, uh, intent doesn't matter, it's impact. And so if something makes someone feel marginalized or victimized, then they have been marginalized or victimized. And this is a really, really good way to set students up to be really hurt and angry often. And that's why the subtitle of our book is How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Uh, so yeah, the, it's, it, in, any, in any normal world, um, she, even if she felt a flash of like this mold, mold, what is this word? Well, it turns out it's actually a word that they use on campus a lot to, to talk about how there is a standard prototype, you know, waspy, jockey sort of white person. So fine, that, you know, that's the prototype. And Dean Spellman is, is trying to help people who don't fit it. So, but yes, as you say, you, 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 the goal of discourse is to find the worst possible reading so that you can call them out and then you get the prestige for identifying a, a racist or something like that. So I think we should linger on why intentions should matter, but let's just close Dean Spellman's case. So, so what happened in the aftermath? All right. So uh, Olivia posts the email uh, on her Facebook page and she says, uh, her comment is, I just don't fit that wonderful CMC mold. Feel free to share. So her friends took that invitation and they did share it and added their outrage about the event. Um, and there, and that sparked a wave of giant protests. There were marches, demonstrations. Uh, as usually happens, there's usually a, a list of demands given to the president. And it almost always includes mandatory diversity training for everyone. And this is key, demands that Spellman resign. So in the new call-out culture, it's not enough to shame someone you have to appeal to an authority to get them fired or punished or renounced. And the, uh, the leadership there did what leadership at almost all universities does, which is they don't stand up for the person being attacked. They don't stand up for their faculty. They try to placate the angriest students. They do what they can to basically buy peace. And in so doing, they validate the narrative that CMC, like all schools in America, is so deeply institutionally racist that it needs radical reform. Why do you think the administrations are so craven in the face of these? I mean, what, what clearly uh, I think would take 15 minutes to assess are moral panics. Uh, yes, that's right. It, it, it is a moral panic. And we should return to that. And we should note that there are moral panics on both sides. The, the right-wing media is in a moral panic about this, uh, just as the students are. So uh, there's enough craziness to go around. But yeah, I've wondered about that too. Why, why did this universities almost always, why do the leaders almost always show no backbone? And I think it's in part because they could not understand this. So in the first year, nobody stood up. There wasn't a single college president except for the president at Ohio State uh, when he said, when they occupied his office, and he said, 
um, okay, uh, you've made everyone here in this building feel unsafe. I'm going home now. Uh, the police will come at 7 a.m. and anyone here will be arrested. So then the protesters left. When presidents, uh, and also at um, Oberlin, uh, when they gave the president there the list of demand, uh, they gave him the ultimatum and he said, I don't do ultimatums. If you want to come talk to me, my door is open, but I don't do ultimatums. And then they, you know, retracted it and, and, and met with him. So the point is that the students are in part, they're, in part, they're behaving that way because there's been a vacuum of leadership. Uh, there's not any clear moral order. And so things just sort of drift to, to more radical, more confrontational approaches. And then we should say that, that Spellman did wind up resigning, yes, correct? Yes, that's right. She did resign. The, uni the university leadership never stood up for her, never said a word publicly to defend her. Um, they didn't fire her, of course. I mean, they couldn't possibly fire her. But, um, you know, you can imagine what it would be like to be you know, a dean of students. I mean, she seems like a, you know, you can see, you can watch the videos. If you Google CMC uh, student protests, um, you can find them. Um, you know, she seems like a very sweet woman who is the dean of students. And to have students, sw you know, swarming around, you can watch. I mean, it, it looks kind of like one of those um, shame circles from, uh, from the Cultural Re Revolution. You know, in a circle berating her with a through a through a megaphone. Uh, I'm sure she was quite well. I hate to say traumatized, but in the, I mean, this really would be traumatizing to have everyone calling you a racist and demanding that you be fired. And uh, I think she was castigated for falling asleep in one of these meetings, but we, really she was just trying to hold back tears. I mean, it was just like this. Yeah, is... that's right. You watch the video, and again, it's so you know. At one point, she closes her eyes and she's squeezing her eyes shut. I mean, you can't see very clearly, but. It's, you know, she, the, a woman berates her, says, and she's even falling asleep while we're talking to her. No, no she's crying. Um, anyway, so it, the whole thing is really horrible to watch. And there are, there are a, a number of these stories, a number of these situations. And, I, and most Americans don't know about them. So let's just pause for a second to talk about the underlying ethics of intentions and, I guess, apologies. I mean, this, it's pretty interesting to me to see, and this goes far wider than the, the kinds of cases we're talking about, but just what are the criteria for an apology being accepted? We're witnessing now on social media the casual and, in many cases, warranted destruction of people's reputations. And, I mean, this goes out to, you know, the Me Too phenomenon, and, I mean, just this is now ubiquitous in our lives. We're seeing people who just issue a stream of or a single unfortunate tweet and this comes back to haunt them, and you know they're either destroyed or not, depending on kind of the luck of the draw in many cases. And often there's an attempt to apologize and sort of the degrees of sincerity here. But all of this runs to the significance of what a person actually intends by his or her actions and how those actions are perceived by others and, and the mismatch there. And then what is subsequently said to clarify intention, or even when intentions were in fact bad or less than perfect, how is it that an apology can thereafter matter and redeem a person? So how do you think about this? So I think you're, you're focusing a little bit too much on the dynamics of the interaction between um, the people calling for the person's head and the person who's being accused. I think that's not the right place to focus. The right place to focus is on the dynamics between the person calling for the person's head and all the other members of that person's team or, or side. So um, the way I like to think about things is, so I'm a social psychologist, so you, know, you often hear it said in journalism, follow the money. 
And if you know who's paying off who, you understand what the motives are, you can, under, you can unravel the mystery. Well, for a social psychologist, I would say, follow the prestige. What is it that one gets prestige for doing? Now, everybody of, of all ages is interested in prestige, but especially for young adults who are working it out, it's really, really important. Uh, and especially in a new environment like college. So what do you do to gain prestige? Is it being a great athlete? Is it being beautiful? Is it being smart? Um, and it varies, depends on your subculture, depends on the school. But you have to understand the economy of prestige. What is it that earns you prestige? And I think what has changed since 2013 or 2014 is that we've seen the growth of a new economy of prestige in which you gain prestige by calling out others, by essentially accusing them of racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, or some other form of bigotry. Now, if you think about this, imagine, you know, many of your listeners will know the term um, externalities from economics. You know, if you, if, if when I, I save money by buying a diesel car, but it imposes an externality on the world because my car pollutes. Well, in the same way, if we have an economy of prestige in which I gain prestige by accusing others of racism or calling them out for various um, uh, forms of bigotry, um, there's an externality, namely all the people that I am accusing every day. You know, it's like, imagine if we were all paid by the bullet. You just, you hear, here's a gun, here's a thousand rounds of ammo, just shoot. Shoot as much as you can, you get paid by the bullet. Doesn't matter where it hits, just shoot. And I think that's what we've unleashed on some campuses. Again, not most campuses. You know, if you go to schools in the South or the lower Midwest or the mountain areas, I don't think it's as much. But along the coastal strip of the West Coast, not inland, but the coastal strip of the West Coast uh, and New England at elite schools, and again, not so much in the business school, not in the engineering departments, uh, but in, the, in, the, in some of the humanities departments and education schools, there are sub, there's sub areas of universities where this new economy of, of prestige has taken root. So that's the way I analyze it. Well, so th this reveals why it is totally divorced from any good faith interaction with the intentions of the person you're targeting. Exactly. If your eyes are on your group and the stock price of your prestige in your group, you're not actually detecting the thought crime you're claiming to detect in other people because you don't actually care what their intentions were. That's right. And I think the, the, this, there, it causes so many problems for a, for a closed system like a university uh, where you could, you know, here we are, we're all trying to create diverse um, cohorts, diverse uh, institutions. Um, we're pretty much all in favor of diversity in universities. So we're trying to create this, this uh, kind of a, a culture in which the potential for risk for, for um, offense taking is huge. You know, if you have people from all over the world, you have, you have people from all different ethnicities. So we're putting people together in ways where it could be like a tinderbox. And what we should be doing is teaching them skills of how do you get along and not give offense? How do you give less offense and how do you take less offense? But instead, again, not everywhere, but in some, some subcultures, we're teaching people to take maximum offense uh, be maximally flammable, as it were. And then, of course, we have all these fires breaking out. So then, again, to just to back up here, what, why should intentions matter? Why is the status quo we're describing here such a moral error? Because um, normal human morality, I think you and I both agree, normal human morality is an adaptation shaped by natural selection to facilitate cooperation. Uh, morality is about having uh, the traits or, or virtue and character are about having traits that make you a good partner for cooperation. And so if somebody 
um, harms you deliberately, you need to know that and write that person off. If they harm you accidentally, it would be foolish to write them off. They, you know, everybody harms people accidentally. I mean, if you wrote off your family members, you know, when they offended you, um, you know, or hurt your feelings, especially if they didn't mean to, you know, we, none of us would have any family. So we have to pay attention to intent. Uh, that's what matters to judge a person's character. But as I said, this is not a game. This is not really about what happens between the offender and the offended. This is a game of what happens between the offended and all the other all the other people that the offended person is signaling to. So following from there on the kind of primacy of intention, how do you think we should define bigotry? Well, so I think the the central definition should focus on intent. The central definition should focus on on some element of hostility or negative evaluation. Um, and so the term microaggression could be a useful term if it was limited to small acts that that convey um, hostility, dislike, contempt. So I think that would do most of the work for us if we focused on intent. Now, that would still leave something that we would need to be addressed. And you know, again, my approach is to say, if there's a, a moral concept, there probably is something good, useful, or true behind it. And so the people who promote the idea of microaggressions are saying, you know, even if, um, even if people aren't hostile to me, if they keep asking me where I'm from because you know, I have dark skin or I look Asian or I look, I look like I'm from the Middle East, and they keep saying, where are you from? And it's clear that, you know, my answer of New Jersey doesn't satisfy them because what they really want to know is where are my parents from, you know. So I can see that if you repeatedly are asked that, it could get tiresome. And so I think it's good to have a term for that. It's good to train students to not do things that might make students feel self-conscious or make, make them feel bad. Um, you know, Black students sometimes say people touch their hair. Okay, now maybe the person who touches their hair might say, well, I'm just curious. You know, I didn't mean anything by it. And maybe they didn't. But like, that's really rude. Okay, so, you know, we need a term for that. But the term should not be aggression. The term should be a faux pas. Or something like that. It should be some, it's something foolish. So I, I would be totally fine with training students. If we're going to do this experiment of, of putting together a very diverse student body, I, I think we should do some training in norms of how to get along and give less offense. But if we teach students about microaggressions and we teach them to follow their feelings so that if they feel offended, then they were attacked. And if they were attacked, then they need to call this number. Here's the number for the bias response team. You can find it in the bathroom of every, on every bathroom at NYU. When I go to the bathroom, there's a sign there telling students three ways they can report me if I say something that offends them. So I think what we're doing here is when this is the second grade untruth in our book, um, is always trust your feelings. Don't allow anybody to challenge them or to say, maybe you've interpreted this incorrectly. Yeah, well, so we'll get to the, these untruths in a second. Again, just to capture what we care about here that may be beyond intentions. I certainly don't have an up-to-the-minute sense of, you know, what has been replicated. Perhaps you do. But some research suggests that there really is a problem here that is very likely outside the conscious understanding of any person who may or may not have bad intentions. And I think it's nowhere more clearly expressed than in these resume or CV tests that we have heard about, where you send out identical resumes and you just change the name in one case being a, you know, waspy name with white connotations and in another, a name that has, you know, obvious black connotations. And you see a very different pattern or so it's reported in callbacks for interviews. 
I guess one, I'm just asking you if you know what the status of that research is and can we rely on it? And two, that does seem like a problem worth worrying about that really does slip this net of any person's individual intentions. Sure. So a couple things about this. One is I don't doubt that there are many of those studies and many of them find that result. Um, An important thing to note is that in general, changing the name of the person matters. But when you look at at the race or sex of the person doing the judging, it tends not to matter that much. In other words, it's not just that white men are bigots against everyone else. It's that people um, in a, you know, is that professors, let's say, or wherever it's done, uh, professors have different expectations about a person based, based on their race or gender. So that's one thing. And here we should bring up Lee Justin's work on stereotype accuracy. Uh, if we live in a world in which there are, in fact, correlations between things, there's no way we can stop people from noticing those correlations. So I don't doubt that people have stereotypes and that people do act on those stereotypes. And those stereotypes tend to be shared across demographic groups. That's one thing. Um, Second, uh, I think that would certainly count as a kind of of racism or prejudice. It is a judgment of people based on their category membership. That's not systemic racism. Systemic racism and sexism is something different. That means there's something about the structure of the institution that ends up disadvantaging members of certain groups, even if nobody, no individual uh, in the institution holds prejudiced attitudes. So that's a very important concept. Now, I don't doubt that that is real and it matters. But what I think is really important for us to all understand is what does it take to show systemic um, prejudice? And I, I heard your, uh, your, your talk with Coleman Hughes, who's, who's wonderful, and he put his finger on, on uh, one of them. You cannot just say, oh, look, you know, women are only 30% of the physicists, therefore it's systemically sexist against them. You cannot just point to differences of outcome and say this proves um, systemic sexism or racism. You have to look at the pipeline. And only if the pipeline of very qualified people coming in is very different from the people getting hired, then now you're off and running. Now you can start saying that there might be some systemic problem in the institution. So that's the first thing is, is when you... When, you, when I ask students, okay, what, give me an example. It's almost always two categories. Uh, examples of systemic sexism, prejudice, et cetera, are almost always underrepresentation, um, which, as I say, is not sufficient. It, it might be a reason to look into it. It's not proof. It's not even necessarily evidence. And the other thing that people will point to is, is um, individual cases. So like at Yale, um, there was a really ugly case where, you know, it was a few months ago, um, where a woman, a grad student, there was found a, there was a black woman sleeping on a sofa in a common area, and she called the police on, on this woman. Now, this is obviously racism. This, she obviously thought, oh, this, you know, and this is a fellow student. So this, this is racism. Okay, but now, does this mean that Yale is racist? And if your goal is to prosecute to the maximum possible, if your goal is to show how everyone and everything is racist, then you say, this shows that Yale is racist. Yale must do more, still more diversity training when in fact, I think the way to look at this is, yes, here was an act of racism, and it's appropriate for that woman to feel very ashamed of herself. And if Yale has, I don't know, 15, 20,000 people um, in it, and um, if this sort of thing is happening every day, uh, and especially if it happens every day and people don't care, well, wow, that would be a systemically racist place. But you cannot take zero as the only acceptable number of, of racial or sexist incidents. In other words, if you have a group of 20,000 people and there are three cases like this per year, that would be amazingly good. Like, I can't imagine any human institution that would get that close to zero. Uh, And then, of course, if you factor in misunderstandings, now here there was not a misunderstanding, 
But often people mishear each other. Someone says something was a joke. So no human institution will ever get down to zero per year. That's just not possible. And so you can't take instances as evidence of systemic racism or sexism. It's interesting because the leading edge of this ethically and politically for me are, are those cases where you really just have the kind of the perfect instance of just kind of no bright lines. As you say, there are cases where stereotypes are more or less accurate. We have stereotypes very often for a reason. And those are cases where otherwise well-intentioned people can be caught out as essentially spreading this impression of racism or bigotry where it probably doesn't exist, or at least doesn't exist at the level of bad intentions. I don't know the Yale case specifically, but let me just take, you know, violence in the black community among, you know, men age 18 to 24. If you go to inner city Chicago and decide to be blind to the statistical reality that there is way more violence among young black men than in other populations, you're just being willfully blind to what is in fact a reality. So you could imagine someone in a a coffee shop in Chicago seeing a young black man in, you know, some situation that's analogous to the one you describe at Yale, right? So someone who seems to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And uh, having this, you know, reaction, you know, calling the police, and it turns out to be totally unwarranted, right? Now, in that case, what's interesting for me is, is, is does the person feel ashamed to have done that? You know, if, uh, ashamed at the misunderstanding. The shame there is a measure of, I would argue, the person not being racist in the primary sense, which is this person doesn't want to live in a world where people are discriminated against on the basis of the color of their skin. This person was just scared based on a set of background assumptions that do more or less track the the real facts in that environment. Right. So we can certainly try to understand why people have these stereotypes, why they call the police when they see black people in swimming pools and on beaches and all sorts of places. So we can certainly play the understanding game, but that doesn't mean that it's okay. So here's here's where the intent, where just looking at intent is not sufficient. So what such a people they might argue that they had no bad intent, although it is clear they had a negative stereotype. Now, what you're saying is, is that we can't necessarily blame them for holding the stereotype. It's hard to stop yourself from seeing contingencies in the world. But a decent person, an educated person, is one who knows when to suppress those, when not to act on them. And I think we do need to train people that, look, a lot of people have these stereotypes. And if you act on them, you're often going to get it wrong. And it would be really powerful, I think, for more white people to hear what it's like to walk around the world while black and have people suspecting you. And if, you know, and if, if these sorts of indignities happen to, uh, happen to uh, black citizens every month, that's horrible. So you know, I, I think the living while black, that meme, that idea is very powerful. So I think we can address these problems. I, I would never say, hey, you know, just get over it, accept things as they are. But I think if we can reduce the moralism, reduce the outrage, and see these as complicated social science problems that have enormous impact, especially on the lives of, of, of Black citizens, above all, more than any other group, we have to take these seriously and try to change systems, change training. Starbucks is right to do training on it. So I'm all in favor of that. I think we just need to sort of demoralize the language a bit and focus not on expressing maximum outrage, but on choosing methods that will work. It would have been wonderful if Starbucks had done an experiment. 
they had a chance to do the biggest experiment in the whole country on this topic. They could have tried all kinds of different training and seen what works. Because as far as we know, there aren't really any methods of diversity training that have been demonstrated to reliably pr improve racial interactions and uh, racial climate. As, again, I could be wrong on this, but as I've been reading the literature, I haven't found any that has been shown to be reliable. So Starbucks could have taken a, an approach of let's try to solve the problem. And they, they could have done a, taken a giant step forward, but instead they, I, I don't know, but I'm guessing they did a kind of a CYA thing and they just did a big showy, you know, national, you know, all stores closed. We're all going to do the same training. And that means we learn nothing from it. Yeah, I guess this, for me, the a crucial test here is, I guess we might call it the what kind of world do you want to live in test. And if you apply that to a person, that is the the appropriate filter for whether you're you're dealing with someone who can rationally collaborate in building a world that we all want to live in. And that's, so th those people are, by definition, not racist in the primary sense. So if you take someone like Dean Spellman, who we just talked about, you read her email, and you know that the world she wants to live in is a world where all the students under her charge at Claremont McKenna feel comfortable, feel integrated. Right, feel welcome and included, yes. And, and, and what's truly horrible about the, the current situation is that you get the sense that the people who, who are calling for her head probably understand that, or at least could be made to understand that in about five seconds, and yet it still doesn't matter because it could be because some kind of taboo has been introduced or bad faith has become a kind of a pragmatic principle of seizing some kind of power here. And that's what I find so odious about what's been happening. Um, yes, I think we, the way to understand this is that there are all kinds of different games that, that we could play. And the university game or the, or the find truth game is the one that many of us think that we're playing or we think we're supposed to be playing. And that is, um, you know, I come forward and I say, here's my hypothesis or here's my argument, and here's my evidence. And then you come forward and you say, no, you know, you know what about this? What about that study? Um, and, you know, you and I went back and forth on the nature of morality and, and is religion an adaptation. So that's the, the, the game. And it can be heated sometimes. So that's, that's one game. And, and universities are these specialized places for that game. They're designed for that game. They have norms for that game. They have role models for that game. Uh, we tell a story about ourselves that we go back to Socrates, uh, who, you know, at least in the Western mind, invented or, or you know, formalized that game. So that's one game. Then there's a different game, which is the game that we play in the public square, which is um, our side versus your side. What kind of society do we want to live in? We're trying to change things. You're trying to change things the other way. We're at war. We hate you. And it's the thinking of war. So let's, let's just call it the war game. And uh, in the war game, I'm trying to inflict maximum damage on you. You're trying to inflict maximum damage on me. And then that's the way it goes. You know, universities are not set up for that. Universities cannot handle that. Free inquiry, exploration. These things die the instant the war game comes to campus. And this is, I think, the new dynamic that's happened since 2015 is while there, the war game used to be confined to just a few departments and a few schools on campus, and not at most schools, just at, you know, at the more, ra more radical ones. Um, so it was there for a long time, but it was really confined to just a few little zones. I think it really burst out um, and, and spread widely in around 2015. And a lot of that is because that's happening all over the country. In other words, uh, because of social media and rising cross-partisan hatred, I mean, there's no doubt that uh, if you look at how lefts and right feel about each other, 
it wasn't actually all that negative up into the 1970s. And cross-partisan hostility, however you measure it, goes up and up and up from the 80s through the present. And so um, the war game has increasingly come to campus where the issue, if a speaker is to come to campus, the issue isn't, do we agree with him or not? The issue is, is this an attack on our side? This is un, uh, unacceptable. We must shut him down. We cannot let this speaker onto campus. And so I think this is what we're seeing on campus is this complete incoherence. You know, it's like some people wander out on, like the professors or some older people wander out onto the court with, ten, you know, they wander out on, with tennis, tennis rackets uh, and then they're getting tackled and they're like, what, 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 what just happened? Mm-hmm. Because it's two different games. Okay, so let's run through your three great untruths, because we've touched on them in a kind of scattershot way, but let's just define them, because I think it's a very useful template for thinking about this. So what are the three? So my first book was called The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. And um, it was about the ideas of the ancients. They were you know, terrible chemists and physicists, but they were very good psychologists, at least some of them, the ones that make it through to us. And so the three, we can basically summarize the terrible ideas on campus with three ideas, each of which is the opposite of a chapter in the happiness hypothesis. So a chapter one of our book is the untruth of fragility. And the great untruth is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. So if you were to be exposed to writing that questioned your dearest beliefs, if you were exposed to a bad word, um, um, you know, a racial slur in, in Mark Twain, let's say, that this could be damaging. And so we have to protect kids from it. Um, the idea here is that Kids are fragile, not anti-fragile. They don't grow from adversity. They are scarred by it. And if we let that, if, if we teach kids that, then they will fear, they will learn to fear negative experiences and that will make them weaker and more fragile. Yeah. And this is where safe spaces and trigger warnings and microaggressions have become currency. Exactly. That's right. So we call it the culture of safetyism. So safety is a good thing in general, especially physical safety. But with kids born after 1995, they've been raised, again, this is not their fault. We raised them with very little playtime, uh, much more uh, school time. So they didn't have much, nearly as much chance to play. And when they could play, um, it was supervised. Then 9-11 comes along and we tell them the world's dangerous, full of terrorism. Um, anti-bullying programs come along. Adults are now much more active in regulating their conflicts. By the time we reach the early 2000s, we start hearing the first reports of parents who are arrested uh, when their kids are found in a park without an adult supervisor. So kids born after 1995 were really raised differently from kids before. So our book is not about millennials. It's about iGen or Gen Z. Um, So anyway, yes, they were raised. We really did a number on them. And many of them find it sensible that they need to be protected in college. So that's safetyism. There's a paradox here before we move on to the other untruths. There is a paradox here that you describe in the book, which is it's the paradox of progress, where, I mean, the truth is that civilizational progress is in many respects, perhaps most respects, analogous to creating a world which is more and more a safe space. I mean, the fact that we are so coddled and disposed to coddle our children is because, you know, casual unluck that gets you maimed or killed is more and more an anomaly in our worlds. We feel like we can guard against it successfully, and therefore there's more and more a moral obligation to guard against it successfully. That's right. We have, we have shifting goalposts. So we've made 
incredible progress on almost all fronts. Life is better in almost all ways. So, you know, anytime I get too pessimistic about the future, I just, you know, sort of channel my inner Steve Pinker uh, and Matt Ridley and, and others who point out that on almost anything you look at, life is getting better. Um, you know, yes, the gains aren't evenly distributed, but even the poor are a lot better off today materially than they were 30 or 40 years ago. So, yes, things are getting better. And as a consequence, we shift the goalposts. Now, part of that is we have much smaller families. So when people had large families, there were a lot of kids around. Kids would go out to play. They would sometimes get hurt. And occasionally they would actually get killed. Um, you know, but infant mortality or child mortality is way, way down. Accidents are way, way down. It's all wonderful. But what that means is that now that we have only typically one or two kids, we worry about them a lot more. We have the expectation that they won't, won't get injured. And we are also invested much more in them as our personal project, our prestige project. Going back to the issue of prestige, how do, kids, how do people get prestige? And at least in the middle class and above, you get prestige very largely by how your one or two children did on the college admissions race. And so that's another reason we've cracked down on kids and deprived them of playtime and forced them to study, 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 play the cello, do some fake volunteer work, uh, and, and mm -hmm. focus your life on getting into a top school. You have kids. How, how old are your kids? My kids are eight and 12. Uh, and I've been trying, so especially ever since reading Lenore Skenazy. So Lenore Skenazy wrote Free Range Kids. She's the known as America's worst mom because she let her nine-year-old son ride the subway in 2009. And he made it not only safe and sound, but ecstatic, thrilled that he'd been given a chance and that he'd had a, ch a chance to overcome uh, this challenge. And it, many people said, this is terrible. This is irresponsible. This is child abuse or neglect. Um, so she's wonderful. And since reading her work, I have tried to be more free range with my kids, um, but it's, it can be difficult because there are no other kids out there. So my, you know, I send my son when he was nine, 10, I would send him across the street to the supermarket and I had to kind of push him out because, you know, he'd say, you know, people look at me funny, dad, there's, there are no other kids out there without a parent. People are wondering like, where's your parent? So it's not a problem you can necessarily solve on your own. We need a culture change to really move us to recognizing that if kids don't have a lot of chances to be self-supervising, they will not learn how to be self-supervising. Yeah, I'm trying to solve this with Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Oh, how do you, what's your trick? Well, I mean, I'm just, you know, my daughters will be obliged to take Brazilian jiu-jitsu at some point. I mean, actually, my oldest, who's nine, is, has just started, and it's fantastic, and it's a fantastic martial arts for creating, you know, all of the character learning you would want in a, an uncoddled mind. But it is in the context of my having coddled her to the limits of human ability. Right. Okay. So tell me how much, tell me in a typical week of hers during the school year, how much time does she have where there is no adult supervising, no adult watching over her, no adult who knows what she's doing? Well, within the confines of our house, a fair amount, but. No, outside the, outside your house. Yeah. We know there are no monsters in the house. It's a hard question. I mean, she's often in supervised situations where we are not, you know, school and camp and. But there's, a, right, but there's always a responsible adult. So that's bad. Right. We need right. to put our kids into situations where there is no responsible adult. Now, I don't mean they should be playing in traffic, but like one great example of, of what, of a simple thing to do. Um, so Lenore Skenazy and I and, and Peter Gray and Daniel Shookman created an organization called Let Grow. So if people go to letgrow.org, they'll find all kinds of suggestions for how we can let kids grow. And a really simple one is schools can open up the playground before school and after school, and kids can play there, and there will be nobody getting involved. So, you know, you might want to have an adult like nearby or maybe just inside, 
but there, you know, but if kids get in a fight, there will be no adult to come out and settle it. That's crucial. And it turns out when you do that, and we've been doing it at some schools on Long Island, it works out fantastically well. When the kids know there's no adult, they actually settle and solve their problems themselves. Mm. But then how do you pair that with the bullying problem that seems also to be described as some sort of epidemic? Yeah, it is It is tricky. Uh, and that too is, 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 I think, partly a moral panic. I think bullying rates are way down. The key about bullying is not an unpleasant confrontation. It's not name calling. We've had such concept creep on bullying that my kids will say, you know, if somebody says something mean to them, it's bullying. Um, and we've got to get over that. The key to bullying is that it's repeated over days. So if, there's, if a kid is picking on another kid and there's a power imbalance and it goes on for days so that one kid is afraid to go to school, okay, that's a real problem. Then you, you probably do need adult intervention. Least you need anti-bullying training so the kids themselves can recognize that. But if we treat two kids ganging up on one or calling a kid names, or, or, or teasing, or excluding. You know, if we treat excluding as bullying, that re- and that requires adult intervention, we are basically teaching our kids that if they're ever left out, there's a problem that some adult should be alerted about. And that is really poor preparation for life. Mm. Okay, so we're talking about this first great untruth of fragility, that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. You have this great line at some point in your book where you're discussing this, that, uh, quote, avoiding triggers is a symptom of PTSD, not a treatment for it. You're talking about trigger warnings there. So like the idea that you should be avoiding the thing that makes you uncomfortable systematically, and that, you know, in a college environment, it's the college's responsibility to never make you uncomfortable. That is the opposite of you've already mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy. That's the opposite of the thing that would actually get you to overcome this disability. That's right. So we, so, um, so first of all, trauma is fairly common, but PTSD is actually very rare. So people have, you know, kids of you know, college students, many have had terrible things happen to them. Very few of them have actual PTSD. And if they do have actual PTSD, they should be under the care of a therapist. And the therapists we've spoken to, especially the psychiatrists, they all, they all take the same view, which is that the best way to get over a phobia, the best way to get over PTSD, which is brought on by reminders, is to be exposed to those very reminders in a graduated systematic desensitization way. You know, so if, if somebody was a victim of violence with guns, let's say, um, you don't want to remove any story or any novel and literature that has a gun in it. That would be the opposite of what you should do. Of course, you don't want to point a gun in their face. That would be terrible too. But a really good way to be systematically desensitized is to be exposed to stories that have the word gun in it. And then nothing happens to them. And then by Pavlovian conditioning, the fear drops. And so trigger warnings, while again, well-intentioned, and this is the theme of the book, all the things we're doing that are messing kids up are well-intentioned, but they're based on really, really bad psychology. And they end up, many of them, having exactly the opposite effect of what we want. I guess the principal psychological issue here is that people have begun to equate emotional discomfort with physical threat. That's right. That's why people, that's why kids today say, I feel unsafe. Now, it's one thing if you feel unsafe because, you know, you're out on a beam over, a, you know, over a construction site, you know, or if, or if you think a building's going to collapse, you, you have every right to feel unsafe. But if you feel unsafe because Charles Murray has come to campus and is going to speak about social class, which is what he was going to speak on at Middlebury, if that makes you feel unsafe, 
now there's a problem. It's not your fault, but somehow you've been, you know, life is hard enough. Somebody taught you that you should feel unsafe if a talk is going to happen on campus that you're not going to. And so it's just foolish to make, to take your nervous system and to put triggers out there in the world and say all sorts of things that can, can happen that are going to make me feel unsafe. Well, that takes us to the second great untruth. Perhaps you want to introduce it. Yeah, sure. So the second great untruth is the untruth of emotional reasoning, which is always trust your feelings. Now, this is the exact opposite of ancient wisdom from every culture I've looked at. So here's Epictetus. Uh, what really frightens and dismays us is not external events themselves, but the way in which we think about them. It is not things that disturb us, but our interpretation of their significance. And it's a great truth because you find it in many cultures. Here's Buddha. Our life is the creation of our minds. With our minds, we make the world. Uh, here's Shakespeare in, in uh, Hamlet. Uh, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So, you know, we, we, we choose how to interpret things. We have a lot of leeway in how to interpret things. There are a lot of ambiguous things in the world, and we get to choose. Am I going to take this as a personal attack? Or am I going to brush it off and say the person probably didn't mean it as a personal attack? And so I'll just give you one example. So I did a, a panel discussion here at NYU, at NYU Law School. And uh, there was a student, there was a, a law student who you know, was arguing that NYU is systemically racist. And I asked her to, you know, to explain, well, and she, at one point she said violence. She said, it, you know, it perpetrates violence on its students of color. And I said, really? V violence? Like, can you explain this to me? You know, what do you mean that NYU is systemically racist? And she said, well, it's undeniable that NYU was not built for people like me because she's Hispanic. And I thought, really? Wow. Okay. I don't deny that it wasn't built for you when they built it in you know, 1840. They weren't thinking of, of Hispanic women. That's true. They might've been expecting all white males, but you know, here we are in a panel with you know, a, a, gay, a gay black uh, philosopher, you know, Anthony Appiah, uh, and a Chinese, a, a Chinese woman, Jeannie Soup Gerson, and I'm you know Jewish uh, Jewish man. It wasn't built for any of us, and so, but it's amazingly open. NYU is an incredibly open place, an incredibly welcoming place. And so, to take the historical fact that it was built by white men, and to turn that into an obstacle for yourself, you, I mean, she's basically self-marginalizing. We're giving kids the tools to self-marginalize even when they arrive at one of the most welcoming institutions they could possibly find themselves in. So again. We are setting our we're setting kids up for failure. Uh, if if we if we can teach kids to think this way, we can guarantee that no matter what we do, they will feel marginalized and unwelcome. Well, of course, the iGen retort to what you just said is that you're invalidating this woman's experience. Oh no, it's it's gone up since then. It's I'm invalidating her existence. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, we're still yeah, so. so if I assert that she poof, she will cease to exist. Right. Yeah. Right. No wonder she feels unsafe. So I guess this segues neatly into your third untruth, which is this kind of black and white thinking about there being good people in the world and, and bad people in the world, the us versus them schema. Yeah, this is the most, this is the most pernicious of all. Um, so yeah, the, the untruth is life is a battle between good people and evil people. And this is, this is social psych 101. You know, there's all these experiments, the Tajfel minimal group experiments. It's very easy to turn people, to, to get people to join groups and then um, fight or dislike the other group. And this is the Bedouin proverb, me against my brother, me and my brother against our cousin, me, my brother and cousin against, against the world or against the stranger, either way. And so 
what we do in the chapter, and this is what we try to do throughout the book, we don't come in and say, oh, identity politics is terrible and social justice warrior. You know, we don't do any of that. We're trying to solve the problem. We're trying to figure out everybody's well-intentioned. Everybody's pursuing what they think of as, as moral ends or moral goods. We're just trying to figure out what, what's going on and what would actually work. And what we find from looking at different forms of identity politics is that there is a need for identity politics. In any organization, there will be politics. Uh, you know, different departments will be scheming for their interests. To have people combine, uh, to have, say, the black employees or the female employees or the transgender employees or students, whatever, to have them combine to pursue their interests is not a bad thing. It's a necessary thing. But there's two ways to do it. And so you can either do it under the rubric of common humanity, identity politics, or common enemy identity politics. And when you look back at the, at the most successful civil rights campaigners, so if you look at back at Martin Luther King, he's always talking about my, our white brothers and sisters. He's always trying to draw a frame. He's using the moral resources of Christianity and of, of American patriotism to say, we are all one. We are all brothers, brothers and sisters. Now, uh, within this circle, some, of our, some brothers are not being given dignity. They're not being given the protection of the law. And when you do that, you, you end up winning because that's a very powerful and emotionally powerful argument. And that won the day. Here's Paulie Murray. This is so, just so, so explicit. Paulie Murray, who, who a residential college at Yale is now named after. I intend to destroy segregation by positive and embracing methods. When my brothers try to draw a circle to exclude me, I shall draw a larger circle to include them. So she's using, as Buddha says, you know, hate doesn't dispel hate, only love dispels hate. So this is ancient wisdom. This is basic psychology. But instead, what happens nowadays on college campuses is let's all unite. Let's unite all the, all the members of the marginalized groups around our shared hatred of the enemy. And the enemy is the straight white male. And so um, if you do that, it can be effective at bringing people together. Uh, you can form a coalition of marginalized groups, and that can be a majority, if you especially include women, because most students are women. So you could unite 70 or 80% of the students against the straight white men. But is that really going to achieve your ends? Is that really going to lead to the kind of university you want? Or is it just going to lead to eternal conflict? There's this other schema, which is also black and white, which is, I think, probably born of postmodernism rather directly, which is to see everything through the lens of power relationships so that everyone is either an oppressor or a member of the oppressed. Exactly. That is the core of common enemy identity politics. So, and this is one of, this is probably my biggest single concern about the new culture on campus. And again, new culture doesn't mean most people subscribe to it, but it's there, it's a minority, but it has a lot of people intimidated. They do tend to, I, I don't understand postmodern. I never talk about postmodernism because I've never been able to understand it. I'm more comfortable talking about- You're not alone. Uh, I'm more comfortable talking about intersectionality in part because the, those writers are very clear. I mean, they actually, you, you really can read them and understand their point. And the core point is a, is a very good, valid one, which is, you know, if you, is that in, uh, identities interact um, in statistical terms, there are interaction effects. So a, a black woman isn't just treated as a black person and then also treated as a woman, that there are specific ways that she's treated because she's a black woman. So that's intersectionality. So that's totally legit. That's fine. That's helpful. And if you look at Kimberly Crenshaw, she's the, one of the originators, one of the spokespeople, or the major writers in it. She gives a TED talk, which is really good. There's no hostility. There's no demonization of straight white males. So it can be done in a very positive way. But what happens on campus is that students learn 
to see everything in exactly as you said, these dimensions, everything is dimensions. So you see up oh, white is bad because it oppresses black. Male is bad because it oppresses female. Straight is bad because it oppresses all other sexualities. And you take young people who evolved to be tribal, who evolved to do tribal warfare, and instead of doing everything you can to turn down the tribalism, you turn it up. What a stupid thing to do. If you're going to assemble what could be a tinderbox of different groups on campus and you pour gasoline on the, on the pile rather than what's the opposite, I don't know, you know, not water, but you know, rather than trying to get people to get along, you train people to judge others based on their race and gender. I cannot believe that we are doing this in the 21st century. Some students actually form negative views of people the instant they see them. Yeah. And it's considered a moral virtue. I mean, the, the, the reason why reverse racism, in, in, to take just one of these variables, is so pernicious is that it is described quite consciously as kind of the highest moral attitude. I mean, you are fighting oppression. That's right. Exactly. And so that, and that brings to this Sarah Jong um, phenomena that, you know, if you say terrible, terrible things about straight white men, you gain prestige in your group. And so this is common enemy identity politics. It is a recipe for eternal division. It's completely antithetical to the progress we made in the 20th century, turning down this stuff. Uh, so, uh, you know, you, I mean, its defenders will say um, that, you know, that uh, uh, expressing hatred of straight white men is not the same as expressing straight, uh, expressing hatred of, 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 of black people or women. And they're right, it's not the same, but it still is bad. And anytime you're training people to hate based on their group membership, I mean, you, who could possibly defend that? Well, they have, as you know. So let's just remind people who Sarah Jong is because, and this goes to a larger discussion about social media, because my experience was that out in the real world, among people who are not on Twitter, very few heard about the Sarah Jong controversy. So let's just remind people what happened there. Oh, the New York Times hired hired a young, a young woman, Korean-American, uh, Harvard Law School, I think it was, or yeah. something. And then it was quickly discovered that she had a series of tweets over about two years. I don't have them handy, but it was, you know, I, you know, I, just, I just love dumping on straight white men or, you know, they're, you know, white people are marking up the internet, you know, like dogs pissing. I, I, I can't remember what it was, but really contemptuous, nasty stuff about white people, white men, straight white men. And then there was a demand to have her fired. And I tweeted in her defense just that, she should not be fired. I have a real thing about internet mobs, and I think everybody should have a policy. If a mob demands you, so that someone be fired, the policy should be, therefore, we will not fire her, period. We might be willing to implement some sort of review process, but we're going to make sure it takes a long time so the circus can move on. So I don't think she should be fired. But I do think that, that people have to, have to look at that case and then look at all the other cases where journalists like Kevin Williamson or others were fired and realize, you know, what are you doing? Are you following consistent principles? And how does this look to the rest of the country? That's an interesting criterion or um, admonition that to not ever respond to an internet never, mob. But never I, respond. Yep. I'm not sure I agree with it, but just you could imagine a case that's so egregious that it's guaranteed to provoke some kind of internet mob, right? So how about terrorists? Right, Sam, what about terrorists? Can you imagine terrorists or uh, you know, that we should respond to, that they, they, they demand that we do something. And you might say, well, yeah, sometimes we should. Sometimes we should do what they say. The valence here is flipped. Here you're talking about the outrage of vast numbers of otherwise normal people. 
right? So you're not talking about the outrage of small numbers of committed terrorists. You're saying something's happened that has caused millions of people to pay attention in a way that is, you know, highly charged in in the negative sense. And millions of people are calling for some remedy. And you're saying that what we need is a, an algorithmic response here, which says, no, these are the circumstances under which we will not do what millions of people say we should do. And I, and I agree that internet mobbing is a, is a huge problem. And in many cases, we should tell the mob to go fuck itself. But in Sarah Jong's case, you know, I wonder when this comes to light, what on earth would be the point of employing her as an editorial writer at the New York Times? Well, I think it's appropriate. So I think it's appropriate for people to say terrible things about the Times for it. The Times should lose prestige for it. But I think every time, uh, so I'm coming from the situation on campus where uh, a mob will demand the firing of a professor. Now, actually, these days, it's it, it, in terms of an internet mob, it's likely to be the right-wing folks because there is a moral panic about what's going on on campus on the right. Right-wing media sources love this stuff. To say there's a moral panic doesn't mean there's not also a really serious problem. But um, the professors who are fired, um, even though conservatives are more likely to be fired per capita, since there are so many more liberals than conservatives, the people getting fired are mostly liberals and mostly on the left. People who said something, in fact, usually it's anti, or often they actually say anti-white racist stuff. It gets on Fox News. The outrage mob demands that the school fire them. And it turns out it's not millions of people. It sometimes is just a few people have written to the president say, demanding that they be fired. And if the president would just hold tough and say, we will look into this, we will consider this uh, when this person's contract comes up for renewal, but we will do nothing now. Nothing. End of story. Goodbye. If everybody did that, the problem would be much, much less serious. Every time you reward, every time you show, hey, if you can whip up an angry enough mob, we'll fire them by 8 a.m. tomorrow. You know, anytime you do that, you're whipping up more mobs. For me, the issue is not responding to the mob or not. It's what is the actual information on a person that has come to light, right? So like, what mattered to me about the Sarah Jong incident was not that so many people thought she should be fired or so many people were outraged. It's just to look at her history of tweets. I mean, there were, it was, it was, it was actually beyond two years. I think it was many years and like hundreds and hundreds of tweets that, I mean, she had this absolute obsessive hatred of white people. Now, I know people within her community said that this is, you know, it's not what it seemed. This is just a, patois in this community where you rag on white people and it's not actually racism, but there was no way of interpreting what she was trailing on her Twitter feed as anything other than just a commitment to despising white people on some level. Yeah. No, this is, so I think the Times should not have hired her in the first place, but they knew about that and they made a decision. Now, we can disagree with that decision, but the way they could compound the error of that decision would be to fire her in response to a mob. Then they would get everything wrong. Well, so social media, I, I was reading your discussion of cognitive behavioral therapy and the kinds of cognitive distortions that it tries to remedy. And it's hard not to see social media as, on some level, the best tool for amplifying these distortions we have ever devised. When you look at this list of overgeneralizing and dichotomous thinking and labeling and negative filtering and blaming and mind reading, all of it is the substance of certainly Twitter, but you know, mostly what's happening on social media. And in addition, there's something else happening that is amplifying this in a way that has really never existed on Earth because 
when you look at the people you are doing all of these things to, overgeneralizing, thinking dichotomously, labeling, blaming, etc., on social media, you are actually not even understanding their behavior in its true context because you don't see what they see. The phenomenon of information siloing leaves us all actually unable to accurately interpret other people's behavior because we don't see the information they're imbibing every minute on social media. And so, I, you know, when I look at Trump supporters, rather often they seem legitimately insane to me. What I have to do is correct for my ignorance in that I just don't know what degree to which they are consuming information or misinformation that, I, that I'm not even seeing. So, yes, I, I do agree that social media has changed something very fundamental. Um, and, and one way to see this is think about the context of communication. What are we doing when we, when we communicate? And when, when two people talk in private, they might be trying to influence each other. They might just be trying to bond. Um, there's all sorts of things that they might be doing. Um, and, and it's difficult but possible to take the other person's perspective. Now put an audience nearby, put them on stage and have them talk. Uh, you know, as you and I are doing now, you know, we're, you know, you and I are very experienced at this. Um, if we were speaking in private, I don't know if it'd be very different, but in this case, but, you know, if we were having more of a fight, uh, you know, it would be very, it would probably be very different. So put, put people in front of an audience and then, and that changes the nature of what is said and the degree to which you want to take the other person's perspective. Now put them in front of a giant audience that you cannot see and that you will never get a sense of what they believe on average. All you will hear from is the fringes, the people who will say the most horrible things about you. And in front of that audience now, you are no longer, you know, you and I are no longer talking. We're each talking to our respective audiences. So I think it's just fundamentally changed the wiring of society in ways that at first, you know, the people at Facebook, I think they're very idealistic. They really think that connecting the world was a, was a, a, a valiant mission. And in some ways it was, but I think they had too rosy a view of human nature and all kinds of bad things happen when, when you're connecting everyone. So for example, the other day I got an email. Uh, let me see if I can find it. I got an email. It was from some anonymous servant. It basically just said, fuck you, asshole. And I thought, wow. So it, when everybody's connected to everybody, the instant somebody reads something I, you know, that I, I wrote and doesn't like me, they can follow their feelings, go to this anonymous server and send me whatever they want. You know, of course, they can send me bombs in the U.S. mail, too. But, you know, connecting everybody to everybody so that they can instantly discharge their spleen is just a really bad idea. And I think we're wrestling with it. I think we're going to find some ways out. So, for example, um, you know, I don't I think I don't ever want to be in an in an unregulated neighborhood on the Internet ever again. By unregulated, what I mean is people can go there who nobody knows. There's nobody can ever find if they make a death threat. Nobody can even tell who they are. There's no reason why I would ever want to be in such a neighborhood. There's nothing good that comes of it. But you're on Twitter, though, right? Isn't Twitter such a neighborhood? Um, Yes, I guess it is, actually. Um, and I am on it because I feel like I do need to participate in the public debate. But it, Twitter would be much better if every, if every single person, their identity could be verified. Not by me. It's totally fine that people can be on where I don't know who they are. But Twitter needs to know who they are. So that if they threaten violence, Twitter can do more than just shut down their account. Um, if people actually threaten violence, I, I think you know, if, if everybody knows that their name is known at least to Twitter, the real name, verified real name is known to Twitter, I think we're going to get a lot less of the bad stuff. So, and what, you know, what I get is pretty mild. What you get is, of course, a lot worse. But I'm really persuaded by the studies that show 
that if you're a female journalist or a black journalist, you just get mountains of like rape threats, racist threats. So, you know, there's no nothing good comes of that. We shouldn't be, you know, there's no no platform should allow that to happen. Yeah. There's a, a hack for this in, in terms of what you see on Twitter. I've mentioned this before, I think, when talking about Twitter. Once I selected for just seeing people in my at mentions whose emails had been verified by Twitter, the craziness and the pain went down by at least 95%. <laughs> okay. So, so for, right, for you, I'm sure that eliminated almost all the death threats, but, but that wouldn't solve the problem. Yes, that would make me feel better, but that still means that people are out there saying horrible, horrible things about me, and then my reputation is being destroyed. I just don't know it. So I don't think that solves the problem at all. Well, it solves the problem in that this is a bit of a paradox because it's I perhaps more than you. I'm, in fact, I'm sure more than you, but perhaps like you and many others have found that social media is a context in which you put stuff out there, you respond to the confusion and the malice that comes back to you. And however constructively you do that, and we certainly all have our moments where we're less wise than at other moments, it is this repeated cycle of more or less at best fighting your way back to zero. Then you wonder, well, what was the point of, of all of that, right? I mean, this is... Well, but, okay, but Sam, here you're judging by what people say back to you. And the people who write back to you are like less than 1% of the people who see what you write. And so what I've tried to do on Twitter, is, and in, my, in everything I do, I just try to be really civil all the time. You know, the one time I violated that was, you know, in our conflict yeah, a number of years yeah. ago, I kind of, you know, but that was, a, that was a very, that was an unusual interaction that you and I had. Yeah. But anyway, other than that. But in the end, prove productive because we are here right now. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Actually, that's right. Yeah. Be you know, because look, because ultimately you and I were both playing the truth game. We were ultimately both trying to figure out, figure things that we weren't really out to like, we're not on different teams. It's not like we were like trying to defeat the other team. At any rate, the point is, what I try to do on, on Twitter is just always be really civil and try to acknowledge. If you just do send one little signal of acknowledgement that the, the other person might be right about something or something like that, I think it has a really positive effect. And even if a few people still write back and say, fuck you, asshole, I think a hundred other people saw it. And sometimes they'll even say, you know, wow, that was beautiful to watch. Or, you know, that was, I mean, people like to see acts of civility and forgiveness. Uh, so I think it's important to just keep doing it, even if some people still say nasty stuff to you. Yeah. Well, I, I'm now sensitive to your time here, Jonathan. So you've touched on, as you just did there, uh, many solutions to the problem. But I guess I should just close on a more global question of what you think the path forward is, if there's anything that you, know, you, you haven't shared on that sure. front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I recently came across the Bill Clinton quote from his first inaugural. Uh, there's nothing wrong with America that can't be solved by what's right with America. And I'm, I'm wondering, I'm thinking that that might be true for the universities. That there's nothing wrong with the universities that can't be solved by what's right with them. What I mean is we have all, almost all the best social scientists in the world are employed at universities. Uh, this is a sociology problem. This is a moral psychology problem. Um, I think we can figure this out. And what it means is we have to figure out the, the free speech and free inquiry problem, what conditions promote the, the truth-seeking game, while at the same time taking really seriously the concerns, especially of Black students, but also LGBTQ, all of the students who say that they don't feel welcome, th those are facts that we, or th those, are, those are experiences that we need to understand. And I think if we focus on creating the right kind of college environment, 
we can solve all the problems at once. I think we have to solve them all, all at once. We can't just solve one side and not the other. So I do think that the universities have the resources to solve these problems. I think the university presidents are the ones I've talked to now all agree, wow, universities are becoming ungovernable. This is impossible. Something has to change. So I think the will is there. I think the means are there. So I think we're going to make some progress at universities. Um, I think there's increasing awareness that the, we didn't even talk about the skyrocketing rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide for teenagers, especially teenage girls. Um, this was only known, it only really became clear two or three years ago that this was happening. The rate, the, the increase is really just since about 2011, 2012. So I think that in the next two years, I think we're going to see much greater appreciation that we have to ease up on our kids. We have to let them out. We have to let them practice independence. So I think we're going to make progress there. And I think we're going to see, um, well, the third piece of it is what's happening nationally, where, where the rising polarization is making everything harder. I don't think we're going to see progress there. I think that that's going to get worse. So the challenge we face, all of us, everybody listening to this podcast, is we have to adapt our institutions for life in a more polarized, more hate-filled society. And to do that, we have to be more civil to each other. We have to try harder to, to understand that everybody here is morally motivated. And we have to try to learn to get along with each other, people who are different from us politically in, in churches and in synagogues and corporations and high schools and colleges. I think this is the great challenge of the next 10 years. Yes, we have to adapt to global warming and do something about that. But I think we have to adapt to rising polarization and do something about that. Just a question on the college front. Is there a university that just has this absolutely right, that has just solved the problem and can be an example of what to do? Well, so far, the only one that has really um, stood out is the University of Chicago uh, in that they have a long tradition of, uh, of they are the best at playing the truth game. That is, they pride themselves on life there is all argument all the time. So they really were well prepared to stand out and say, we're different. We're not like Brown and Yale and other places that, you know, that are responding with the usual set of, of, of reforms that are going to make things worse. So Chicago is the only one that's really stood out. Now, a few other individual presidents have done well, too. Uh, and actually, the president at Claremont McKenna, I think, really gets it and is, is, is trying to change things there. Uh, Mitch Daniels at Purdue. Um, there are a number of individual presidents that I think are doing very well. Um, and so I think we are going to see a, many more stand up in the next year or two. Not that they're going to come out and say, oh, you know, social justice wars. No, not at all. But they're going to come out and say, you know, what? we need norms here. We need to understand what we're about. We're doing something special here. And so we have to work together to get this right. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the next one or two years. Mm. And I noticed you had a conference that looked great, your first heterodox academy conference at the New York Times Center about... Yeah, it was completely thrilling. Like I didn't want to do it because it's a huge amount of work. And I was thinking, who's going to come? But what happened? So we had, we had this big conference. And if you go to... So if, if people go to heterodoxacademy.org, uh, and then I think somewhere on our homepage, or you'll, you can navigate to find it, is we have all the videos uh, of the conference are, are up. But it was fantastic. Because it turns out a lot of administrators came, you know, a lot of people from NYU, a lot of administrators from NYU and from Stern came because everyone's facing problems. Everybody wants to be inclusive. Everybody wants to solve these problems, but the environment is making it almost impossible to do so. So everybody's looking for help. And the, you know, and it turns out almost like, you know, uh, I think there were four out of 30 speakers were clearly on the right. Um, and probably half or more were clearly on the left, and then the rest were, you know, unidentifiable. 
my point is the vibe was not at all like, oh, conservatives bashing the university. We, we, we don't do that. That's for you know, campus reform and other places to do. Um, we are insiders. We are 2,200 professors, evenly balanced between left and right. Um, and we're trying to fix the universities from inside, not attack them. Yeah, well, your, your efforts there are much appreciated, and I recommend people visit your site. Anything else you want people to, to know about online? or at- uh, Yeah, please, if you're a parent, uh, please go to letgrow.org. Uh, I hope you'll consider supporting the, uh, supporting the effort and, and bring some of those ideas to, especially to elementary and middle schools and high schools as well. Well, uh, once again, John, it's been great having you on. Thanks for your time, and please uh, eat your vegetables and, and uh, <laughs> get enough sleep because you really, I mean, I can count on maybe one finger the number of people who are doing precisely your job. So stay at it. Well, thanks, Sam. Sam, I admire your guts and and your principles. So keep doing what you're doing. Well, thank you.